0: Hi and welcome back to Late Bloomin' Love, the podcast about finding love when it's about bloomin' time. I'm your host Amanda Klang and on each episode of this show I speak with a guest about love and relationships to find inspiration, encouragement and ways to overcome barriers to finding love at any age. That's because I'm single too, and I have been for a long time. So I feel like it's a moment for me to try dating once again, and I'm hoping the guests in this podcast will help me find my own late-bloomin' love. If you're in my shoes, I hope it helps you too. After each interview, my friend Shelly Morgan joins me for a check-in. She's been married for a decade and dated up a storm before that, so we're pretty much opposites when it comes to love. And since we're coming from such different perspectives, we have lots to say to each other. Today's episode on the podcast is a little different. It features part one of an interview I did early in the pandemic with a hero of mine sex educator, and New York Times bestselling author, Emily Nagoski. She wrote, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, which was popular enough to be re-released with a new edition a year ago in the spring of 2021. In her book, Nagoski explains the new understandings she gained after realizing that Everything she'd learned about sex growing up was wrong. That book, and in a small way, our conversation is part of Nagoski's larger project, a global, multi-generational process of dismantling sex-negative, oppressive messages around sexuality, and particularly women's experience of their bodies, their sexuality, and their sense of self-worth. If you're a woman in this North American culture who's seeking an experience of late-bloom and love, I believe Emily Nagoski's book is essential reading. Part one of our conversation is next, and thanks for your patience with the not-so-perfect recording quality. Hi, Emily, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It is my pleasure.
0: Well, it is my pleasure, too. I'm really delighted. Okay, so you are the author of this wonderful book, uh, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And I just wanted to start by asking you, when you were working with your students, You, ta- I know you taught at Smith College in Massachusetts, um, and they would share with you what they learned, what they got from your courses, and you found some themes that really pointed to the things that worried, worried these, these were all young women. So what were some of the things that worried them most when they were thinking about their bodies, sexuality, relationships, all that stuff?
1: I asked them as the last question on their final exam to tell me just one important thing they learned. And I thought they were going to talk about the science, which I value so much. But no, more than half of my students It was in the fall semester of 2010, more than half of them just wrote, the most important thing I learned is that I'm normal. I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. Just because I'm different from what my partner expects doesn't mean I need to conform with their expectations. I'm normal. Um, And anyone who's taught final exams will know this is not what it's usually like. I was sitting in my office grading, with tears in my eyes, feeling like something extraordinary had happened for my students in that class and I wanted to do it again, and I wanted to do it on a bigger scale. And that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are.
0: Oh, fabulous. I'm so glad you did. Um, so when, you, when the, the students were saying, I learned that I'm normal, what were some of the things they were worried about not being normal about?
1: Well, basically, I could just go chapter by chapter through Come As You Are. Chapter one, they're worried that the shape of their genitals is not normal, they're worried that their hymen has some big deep meaning about who they are as people. None of those things are true. That's mm-hmm. chapter one. Okay,
0: good. Well, there's, there's a lot, nine. there's, there's a ton to dig into. And it's all so revealing and useful information. And so much of it runs counter to what we learn growing up.
1: Yeah, one of the so things much is that I realized literally everything I learned about sex Up until my first semester in college when I was 18, all of it was wrong. Every, there's not one thing that I learned about sex, bodies, gender, safety, love, relationships. None of it. None of it was right. I had to start from scratch.
0: Amazing. Speaking of relearning everything, which I so agree we're due for in this culture at this time. Um, you offer a nice, um, simple metaphor to talk about how uh, kind of our innate physiology, how our individual bodies intertwine with what we learn as we're growing up as girls and then into women. And it's this garden metaphor. Can you can you explain that?
1: Oh, yes. Actually, I just got an email that I'll tell you about. So the garden metaphor is this very simple idea that on the day you're born, you are given a little plot of rich and fertile soil all your own. And your family of origin, your culture, begin to plant things in this garden. They plant ideas and habits around bodies and sex and gender and love and safety. And uh, they tend the garden for you. And as you get older, they teach you to tend the garden so that by the time you get to adulthood, there it is, there's your, the garden of your sexuality. And some of us get really lucky and our family and our culture plant beautiful, healthy things and all we have to do is maintain it. Uh, and some of us get some really toxic shit planted right. in our gardens. And we have this task of going row by row through the garden of our sexuality that was planted in our minds and making choices about what we wanna keep And what we want to pull out and throw in the compost heap to rot and replace those things with something that we choose for ourselves. Uh, And I just got an email from a reader who is at home with her roommate during COVID, of course, and they had read Come As You Are, and they drew pictures of their gardens. And they talked about, with each other, about the history of like, this was planted by my family. But uh, when I was in college, I had these experiences that pulled that out and I replaced it with this other thing, like about my feelings about my body. Um, And I just think it's a brilliant idea that if you're like getting to a place of trying to understand what is happening in your sexuality, you can make it literal, you can like draw a picture of what was planted in your garden It's easy. When I think about this sort of thing, it's easy for me to get frustrated or impatient with the families and the cultures that taught people um, to distrust and dislike their own bodies. Because when you're a little kid, nobody asks your permission before they plant the idea that your body is unacceptable, is disgusting and dangerous. And hey, would it be all right with you if I plant this idea that your body is inherently immoral? nobody asks us that they just go ahead and plant it and leave it to us in our adulthood to deal with the consequences of that so the active process of uh replacing the things we don't want is not fair right because we didn't get to choose all this stuff but it is such an astonishing opportunity to create a garden for ourselves and where i don't go in come as you are with the metaphor but that i do when i'm speaking in public is one of the beautiful things about working in your garden, your sexual garden in this way, is not just that you end up with a sexual life that you have chosen for yourself, but that every time you pull up the weeds of body self-criticism or of uh, women's bodies as belonging to men, every time you pull those weeds that go, they grow over the fence or under the garden wall, every time you pull them, you make it a little bit more difficult for those weeds to grow back in all the gardens that are adjacent to yours. I love it. So the body self-criticism weeds are weaker in my sister's garden that is planted next to me, which is weaker in her stepdaughter's gardens, which is weaker in all of their friends' gardens. So when you take the time to cultivate a garden of your choosing, you make it that little bit easier for everyone you know to have gardens for themselves.
0: Right. That's, that's, a great metaphor, and then the importance of sharing is so clear in that sense. I, on the topic of um, replacing one set of beliefs and thoughts with another, uh, I was reading or hearing the journalist Peggy Ornstein uh, talking about the concept of losing your virginity. She's the author of uh, two books yeah. about like girls and sex, and then boys and sex. That was her more recent one, and she questioned, you know, why? Why does losing your virginity universally mean the experience of penetrative sex, why couldn't it mean the, for, a, for a girl the first time she feels r- real pleasure in a sexual experience, whatever it is? And I wondered if there was another, um, I don't know, I'm sure there are many that come to mind, but replacing one, um, one definition with another, is there one that comes to mind for you?
1: No, I hate the concept of virginity, and I want it abolished. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. The whole, the origin of virginity itself is inherently patriarchal. Um, Viewing women's bodies as property that belong to men and preserving virginity is really, when you get down to it, only important for girls and women to wait until they're married. The purity narrative is inherently misogynist. Um, and lines women up to be punished when they violate that rule and so i i want to stop talking about virginity uh the only reason it is a conversation is because of the idea that women's bodies are property
0: Mm -hmm.
1: all right i like it doesn't include uh people who will never have sex with someone who doesn't have a different set of genitals Right. So, like, I can't lose my vaginal virginity by having a penis put in it if I'm never going to have sex with somebody who has a penis. So does that mean I'm a virgin forever?
0: Right. So, you would just abolish it altogether. What, what, uh, do we need to replace it with any other kind of concept or it's just not necessary to benchmark people's uh, sort of stepping into their sexual lives?
1: I think sexual growth matters. And if we had a culture, where we were actually celebrating people's development. Childhood sexuality is mostly just like the individual child having experiences by themselves, learning what their body can do. There's some sexual play where they explore other kids' bodies, but a lot of it is really about like, what does this instrument I was born with, what can it do? Oh, it does really neat stuff. And then around adolescence, brain changes and social changes happen where your attention to your sexuality transitions away from just the neat stuff your body does onto building relationships and connections and building sexual partnerships. And if, as a culture, we loved and celebrated and rejoiced in the ways that our kids transitioned into building pleasurable sexual connections with each other, yeah, let's have a ceremony, a marker, something to say you're uh sexual adolescent now.
0: Yay! <laughs> yeah.
1: And we're so far
0: from that. <laughs> we are. We are. But you're helping. You're helping move the needle. That is,
1: that is the goal. Oh,
0: mm. I want to go back for a moment to the physiology, of course. A big part of your um, work, your books, the science of, sex, of uh, sexuality, understanding the, the new understanding of how bodies work especially women's bodies and women's sexual organs and you talk about something that was brand new to me called the dual control mechanism and you call it our sexual personality can you explain a little bit um what that means and how it works
1: sure so i often compare it to introversion extroversion Uh, Which is it's a temperamental trait. It remains more or less stable over our lifetime, though There is some flexibility the same goes with the the brakes and the accelerator So just Mm -hmm. as we all have this mechanism as we all have so introversion extroversion is about where you get your energy Do you have to go be out with people to get energized? and then if you spend too much time alone you feel drained and exhausted or does spending time with people drain and exhaust you and you have to go be alone in order to recharge. Okay. People just vary. In the same way, people just vary in the sensitivity of their brakes and accelerator. Most of us are heaped up in the middle like regular sensitivity, but some people have a very sensitive sexual accelerator. And if you're driving a car with a really sensitive accelerator, how does that go?
0: Right. Zero to like 60. Zoomy, me
1: zippy. Right. Right. Um, and in particular, if it's paired with a low sensitivity break, that it can sound like that's going to be a really fun kind of sexuality. But those are the folks who are most likely to experience sexual compulsivity, feeling mm-hmm. like their sexuality is in control of them instead of them being in control of it. Right. These are the folks who, when they are stressed out, will find that they use sex as a way to manage the uncomfortable Emotions right which can be fine and safe or in the wrong circumstances can lead to greater risk-taking and unwanted consequences and some people have really sensitive breaks and These are the folks who are most likely to experience difficulty around desire arousal pleasure and orgasm And... and when you know that oh, it's not that like I'm broken It's that my break is really sensitive. So of course a stray fingernail a stray thought uh, a stray noise out in the hallway is going to like, boom, shut the brakes on and everything's going to stop for a while. You know that like you're not done. Mm-hmm. That's not like the end of the world. It just means like your brakes got activated by that stimulus. You need to wait and allow the brakes to come back off, redirect your attention somewhere else, and it's all going to be fine. And the third aspect of sensitivity of accelerator or brakes is if you have a low sensitivity accelerator these folks are the most likely to identify as asexual uh approximately one percent of the population of north america identifies as asexual Mm -hmm. and it is not that they have really sensitive brakes that stay on all the time it's they have really not that sensitive accelerator so it takes a lot of sex related stimuli for their brain to get activated into a place of like oh sex Oh, that's a good idea we should how about that yeah and people just vary there is no right or wrong People are just different from each other, and the more you know about yourself and your partners, the more you can create space for each other's differences.
0: Yes, I'd like to go in a little bit to those. Um, so, a, a big aspect of your book that I appreciate so much is really practical advice and practical um, suggestions for how to identify things that are getting in our way, and then some things to do about to do about it. So, if somebody has a really sensitive break. That could be like what you're saying, they're just easily distracted and put off in a sexual situation. But you also talk about how it can be To do with much bigger things in their lives that they might not even be aware of, and you talk about um, sort of stress and recognizing ways to get rid of stress or or deal with stress. And I just wanted to, I wanted you to explain that a little bit because I feel like, of course, that is actually the focus of your second book, but I feel like it's not nearly well enough understood. So if people are living with a lot of stress, um, or women, then um,
1: anybody,
0: Anybody? (laughs) right? Nobody at all. Uh, What What are some of the things that you recommend people do to start addressing that?
1: Yeah, so it is actually relatively uncommon for it to be a sensitive accelerator that's causing the difficulty. It's much more common that it's just our life is providing a lot of stimulation for the brakes. So even if your brake isn't super duper sensitive, if you have if you're stressed out, overwhelmed, exhausted, you've got frustrations in your relationship, you've got frustration at work, you've got difficulties in whatever parenting you might be doing and other relationships in your life and you know the pandemic and patriarchy and COVID and all the things like right. that's all hitting your break, that is normal. If people's interest in sex goes away when they're overwhelmed and exhausted, yes yes that is not a dysfunction there's nothing wrong with you it is appropriate for your interest in sex to change as your context changes and the most common thing almost universal 80 to 90 percent of people who experience stress depression anxiety loneliness repressed rage we've all got it um that negative emotion hits the brakes and if that's you um there is not a problem but it would be better for your sex life, and let's face it, better for your actual life, if you could move toward getting those things to stop hitting your brakes. Um, and I include a whole chapter, my sex book has a chapter on stress and emotion because people fail to understand how to get stress to stop hitting their brakes. The most common advice we get is stuff like, relax. Right. <laughs> I'm like, no kidding. Thanks for that nothing. Thanks a lot. Mm. Um, The part we're not told is that stress, like all of our other body systems, is uh, an oscillation that we move through. It's a cycle. There's a stress response cycle. There's a sleep cycle. There's a stress response cycle, Uh, like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Our sleep has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, Our digestion, beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And we know that if you don't get to the end of the digestive cycle, (laughs) you're in trouble. Like, some not-so-good things can happen, absolutely. The same thing is true for the stress response cycle. So how do you get all the way through the cycle? Um, it is to do the things your body recognizes as returning to a place of safety. Because evolutionarily, the stress response mechanism is to help us survive threats like being chased by a lion on the savanna of Africa. What do you do when you're being chased by a lion?
0: Uh, you run, usually. You
1: run, Yeah. <laughs> And at that point, there's only two possible outcomes. Either (laughs) you get eaten by the lion, in which case none of the rest of this matters, or you survive. So imagine you just like run, run, run. You book. You totally run. You make it back to your village, and somebody lets you in, and the lion roars and gives up and wanders away. And you look to this person who let you into their door and they just saved your life and you're free. You have survived. (laughs) How do you feel? Really good. You love your friends and family. You're so grateful to be alive. That's the sort of stressor we are evolved. And that's the complete stress response mechanism from the beginning of the activation of the stress response with the adrenaline and cortisol that all of us are familiar with by now, followed by an action whose goal is to get our body to a place of safety or to a chemistry of safety, followed by the relaxation and celebration. Compare that to the stressors we have now. Like uh, the commute is one of the most universal stressors that hmm. people can have. Um, so whether it's public transportation or a car, you're, dr- you're on your way home and you're stuck in traffic, and that same chemistry as being chased by a lion is activated in your body, but you can't run. You can't even fight. You just sit there fuming and getting tense, and you can feel in your body how your muscles are are getting tight and your digestive system is churning. Your immune system actually gets suppressed, and your reproductive system gets suppressed, and your attention shifts. So you're focused just in the here and now, um, and you lose access to creative problem-solving because all you can do is stare at the problem. You need to fix the problem, right? And you finally make it home, and you get out of the car, or you... Get to your house and like, do you suddenly feel like here you dealt with the stressor? Do you now feel like glad to be alive, and <laughs> love your
0: friends and family? Not yet, no.
1: Or do you like walk in the door and slam it and scream at the first mammal you see? Right. Unfortunately. So, unfortunately, so just because you've dealt with the stressor, like traffic or whatever, or like the jerk at work who, inter- who interrupted you six times in the same meeting or like watching the news or whatever, just because you've dealt with the stressor does not mean you've dealt with the stress itself. Physical activity is the most efficient way to complete the stress response cycle for most people mm-hmm. because our bodies are wired to interpret physical motion as uh, powering our bodies to move towards safety.
0: Ah, uh, So it's so if you've ever so-soothing. had that
1: runner's high, are you one yeah. of the people who like, you like get to the end of work and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did this. Yes, 100%. So I thought I thought everybody basically was. And then uh, my sister, Amelia, who's the co-author of the second book, Burnout, mm-hmm. was like, yeah, no, I've never had that experience. And I thought you were lying when you said you had had that experience. Oh. She's never had it. Um, so we had to find other evidence-based strategies besides physical activity. Oh, what? But just for the record, when people yeah. say that exercise is good for you, this is why. Oh. And it is real. Even wow. if you do not experience the like, oh, I'm so glad I did that feeling. It's exercise. Good for Uh, you. I know. Halt the presses. uh, That's interesting. Other things that work. You don't have to move your body at all. You can just imagine really vividly moving your body. Uh, Really? You lie in bed and you imagine yourself. uh, My sister used to imagine herself as Godzilla stomping (laughs) on her enemy. She was in grad school at the time and she would just like tromp on the grounds and the bursar's office in the parking lot and like you lie in bed and you let your body go to the tense place and you imagine it and you let your body release the feelings and uh, you're so here's an interesting experiment okay um they had professional basketball players practice shooting hoops right and another set of professional basketball players imagine shooting hoops right who got better they both got equally better wow the right. key, your body, your brain does not know the difference between actually doing something versus truly doing something. The key mm-hmm. is really vivid, concrete, specific imagination allowing your imagination to bring your body through the practice. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, I know. I've heard that before and uh, I believe it in principle. I've, I haven't tried it, but that's an inspiration to try try something like that.
1: One of the things I learned from Amelia is that people just vary in the extent to which these different evidence-based strategies work for them. So it might not be for you, but there's somebody listening who's like, yeah, I've done that. I had no idea that's what I was doing. Uh, ditto uh, a good cry
0: Oh yes. Who says yes. That, uh,
1: crying never solves anything. Does not know the difference between dealing with the stressor and dealing with the stress itself. Mm. It's it's only in a very specific set of circumstances that crying actually solves a problem. Right. Some circumstances exist, but they're very rare. <laughs> but there are lots of circumstances where like you get to your car or you get to your house, you get to your office, you get to the bathroom stall and you just let yourself cry for Five minutes and your body will stop on its own. It just needs to release the stress that was activated and return you to a quieter state so that you can think clearly enough to actually deal with the problem that Mm -hmm. caused the crying.
0: And then all this applies to sex and sexuality because we need to be in that kind of more calm place.
1: Stress it, like when you're being chased by a lion, is that a really good? No, <laughs>
0: right. No, as not very as the good. Body's
1: concerned. the The stress response to different stressors is a little bit different, but mostly your commute gets interpreted by your body as you're being chased by a lion right now, mm-hmm. and uh, you need to f- bring your body to a place of safety, reminded that you are now safe inside your own body, mm-hmm. before your body can let go of that. Breaks and allow the accelerator to do its job.
0: Right. Excellent. And relatively doable for most of us. So that's great. That was part one of my conversation with Emily Nagoski. Up next, the wonderful Shelly Morgan and I check in about it. Shelly Morgan, my favourite podcast partner Joining me today, yeah, to talk about one of my favorite thinkers and writers. She wrote a book several years ago, it's come out with a new edition. It's called Come As You Are The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. I discovered this um, book a few years ago and for me, it was transformative. It was so liberating. And I feel that she's bringing so much love to her readers. She's trying to um, run counter to the the stories in our culture that make women hate ourselves. I, I swear, it's so easy as a woman to hate yourself, hate your body. And so Emily Nagoski is offering an alternative set of views. And I really appreciate that. And I'll just say a bit about what means a lot to me about her. And I'm really curious to hear your response. So Emily talked about in our conversation, what started her on her journey, what prompted her to write her first book. And it was realizing that all these young women that she was teaching at a university worried that they weren't normal. I'm not normal. And then the information she was sharing with them in in the course she was teaching helped them feel this great relief. Oh, I'm normal. I'm different from everybody else but I'm normal and she explained in in a different conversation not the one I had with her that for her that means I belong I'm normal Mm -hmm. means I belong and as humans we were talking about attachment last episode being part of your community being connected to the people in your life that is survival for us so feeling you're normal is like feeling you can survive it's really a basic necessity and then her, her larger goal, Emily Nagoski, is she, she wrote this, she writes this all over her book. She wants to help women live with confidence and joy in their bodies. And she's a North American woman. She's American. She's writing for an English speaking, presumably North American audience. And I will tell you, as a woman who grew up in this culture, it is not easy to walk around living with confidence and joy in your body with all of the messaging that we get from the time we're just teeny. And if you're trying to get into a a romantic relationship, we're talking about late bloom, and love. If you're trying to get into romantic relationship, intimate relationship, all the vulnerability that's required, if you don't feel confident in your own body, and if you don't feel love for yourself in your physical form, that is a big impediment. That really gets in the way. And I don't think I'm unusual in finding that to be a big impediment. So what Nagoski is offering is a whole other way of thinking and practices. That's something I appreciate. She's offering practices for how to shift your thinking if you've been so deeply conditioned by this North American culture that you don't feel confidence and joy in your body. And I would wager most women don't. So, Shelly. Shelley. You grew up in a whole other world, a whole other culture. What's, what was your response to hearing some of what she was saying?
2: Well, yes, I was born and raised in Jamaica. I left Jamaica at the good age of 38. Um, I was born in rural Jamaica mm. and then um, moved into Kingston, which is our capital. Uh, I studied dancehall fashion, so I was in the inner city and so to, to explore dancehall and its fashion. That was my PhD. And I say all of that to, to explore the fact that I felt very content and positive in my body. Mm. And the lyrics and the culture around the Jamaican woman and her body from the re- re- religious, rather rastafari to mm. the dancehall music, was always a celebration. Mind you, there are tensions that exist. Mm. Um, so when I listened to Emily, it was a bit, dare I may say, foreign to me, mm. because my experience of my. Sexual organ of my own sexuality was a celebration, mm. wow. and in Jamaica, they you know there is a place for the smaller-bodied woman, and mm-hmm. there's an even bigger place for the <laughs> bigger-bodied woman mm. because she's seen as fertile. She's seen as a potential conquest, mm-hmm. and both the female dancehall artists as well as the male dancehall artists really push this narrative of celebration of body Mm. Um, and when we talk about late blooming love having a child or having a family actually as a woman it gives you an added status because you've done these things Um, and then there is this whole thing of if you've had a child then you would have wider hips and you would have some meat on that body because mm-hmm. you would have to have supported that child mm-hmm. so there is this and there is this celebration mm-hmm. of the Jamaican woman mm-hmm. that when i hear emily mm-hmm. talk about what exists in north america and also my discussions with you mm-hmm. i am um, i I am at loss for words because it's, mm. it's not something that I experience.
0: So they're different. The beauty ideal is different. The, the kind of body that's celebrated and found alluring and sexy and sexual yes. is different. Just
2: to be woman is alluring. Wow. Oof. Okay. <laughs> we've got a lot to learn. Right. I mean, Jamaica, ha- we've had a very successful female prime minister. Mm. The, the head of the house, a lot of times are women, mm. you know, and, and so it's not foreign to think that you have a sense of awareness and, and, um, confidence because mm-hmm. you have you, you know, you've been brought up that way, but I'm not saying it is across the board, but that is yeah. just my experience.
0: But it sounds like what you're saying is just being a woman is enough. Yeah. Because it's just so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) But so you are, as a woman, you're um, desirable and you are desirable as you are at this moment. Yes. And you are the queen of your own choices. Is that right, too? Yes. Wow. Wow. So all these things that Nagoski was talking about them. Like, for example, the, her garden metaphor, like the, the, the unconscious beliefs that we're raised with and that frequently in the North American culture that she's exposed to, that she's talking about, are beliefs that undermine your feeling of being enough, being worthy, being acceptable even, being acceptable to be loved. I think it's very common that people walk around not feeling that. Not feeling acceptable, and you're saying that that is not the way. No, I'm going
2: to go into my Jamaican go. Mm. and you see my face. If mm. we were on TV, like, no, baby, Mm-mm, not that, <laughs> no, no, Mm-mm, none of that, none of that. You need to know your worth. Mm.
0: I really like the version of how a woman is raised to feel and think that you're describing. I think I think we need a lot more of that here. But let me ask you a question. So this is um, something that Emily Nagoski speaks about in her book. We spoke about it in this part of our conversation that are what she calls the the sexual personality that people have. She compares it to introversion, extroversion. And she says that in terms of our sexual response, all of us, there's sort of two factors. There's the thing that stimulate our interest in, in, in sex or sexual Mm -hmm. response. She calls it the accelerator and the things that shut it down. That's the break and these can be psychological things these can be things in our immediate environment worries i'm wondering mm. in your experience of growing up in jamaica and in moving into you know well into your adulthood had, did you ever encounter anybody i'm talking about women at this point who were not interested in sex who found the who who talked about I don't know, like just just having seem who seemed to you to have a very different kind of response to the encouragement to celebrate their own sexuality. Did you ever encounter anybody that you can remember? No, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah.
2: because as women, we know this is this is one of the um, tools we have in our toolkit uh-huh. to work our magic. Uh to get who we want to get what we want um so not to have it is to almost give away one of your magic pills Uh Uh you know um so you you have to even if you you know might be on the lower end of erotic but Mm -hmm. you know that Mm -hmm. erotic still exists within you
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and you will brag on it as well because there's this <laughs> confidence that your thing is the best thing <laughs> yes. your pie is the best pie all the time <laughs> And because this is building your head from conversations to the music to the expectations wow. so no Wow. So imagine, I mean, if say I had
0: grown up in Jamaica, I would be such a different <laughs> version of myself. That would be so I'd like to meet that woman. <laughs> I got to say I identify with, you know, she talks about the, the uh, high sensitivity, high sensitivity break or low sensitivity break, and then high or low sensitivity accelerate. I would say myself, I have a high sensitivity break. So there's lots of reasons to say, Mm-mm, no, thank you and a low sensitivity accelerator, which means it takes a lot of encouragement and effort just in my own state of mind to be even slightly interested in this domain. And if I had been raised in a culture that's celebrated in some way, because we purport, we pretend to celebrate women and sexuality in this culture, but it comes with so many conditions that it doesn't feel like a celebration at all. So, I mean, I don't know. Emily Nagoski has some really wonderful, I think, practical how-tos. If you recognize Definitely. that your your way of thinking is not working for you, here are some ways to shift yeah. it. So listen, I, I need to put those in practice. And there's no, you know, being born somewhere else. Too late. I was born here. But uh, it's very um, it's it's very interesting and it's very kind of exciting to hear about how I mean just how unquestioning it sounds like from listening to you. Women can be about their own worth.
2: And it's just a matter of shifting consciousness. Mm -hmm, True. It's just a matter of shifting thought process. Mm -hmm. It's all about reteaching and retraining one's thoughts and one's values. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. It's practice. Yes. And all we need to do is know that another way exists. And again, as you said, it's all in the thought. It's all in the thought. <laughs>
0: I think I'm going to leave, leave this right there. And uh, mm-hmm. we're going to have a second, a part two with Emily Nagoski. Cause uh, she's so important to me. I'll be very curious what your response is to part two. It's a continuation of our conversation. I'm excited, but uh, I'll be curious actually for myself. Mm-hmm. If I hear it differently, I'm going to listen back knowing how you've responded and the context in which you were hearing it, mm-hmm. and I wish for all of us to get more Shelley Morgan thinking about this. I think that would be really good. To start an
2: academy, <laughs> I think you should.
0: Oh, my friend! I've said this to you as long as I've known You, you, you have the potential for many academies. Oh yes! Oh yes! Nah, oh, well listen thank you so much and thank you for your honest response i really appreciate it and i think it's really enriching you're welcome hmm. thanks so much to my guest sex educator and author emily nagoski i'll be back with part two of our conversation next episode and with some of emily nagoski's how to's for transforming how you feel about your body. You can find out more about her work at emilynagoski.com. That's N-A-G-O-S-K-I. You can also find her latest project, The Feminist Survival Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks, as always, to my friend and co-conspirator, Shelley Martin. This has been Late and Love with me, your host, Amanda Klang. Thanks so much for joining me here. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Meanwhile, you can find out more about the show and catch up on past episodes at latebloominlove.com. That's Bloomin' B-L-O-O-M-I-N. You can also leave comments or questions there. We'd love to hear from you. And be sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, Late Bloom and Love. Catch you next time.